0: I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and we're going to read from the first chapter of that book, starting in verse 18. As you turn there, uh, let me say that the theme of this sermon was greatly impacted by a a great Christmas Advent devotional that I came across uh, not too long ago, and we'll be putting that devotional on our blog so you can follow up. Uh, uh, to this sermon by checking that out through our, through our main web page. Now though, we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, 800, page 807, if you have a pew Bible. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord and Father, we thank you for these unhurried moments, unhurried moments to reflect upon your word and to hear your voice. Lord, you planned this scripture from eternity past, and you planned that we would hear it this morning. And so we ask that our hearts and our minds would be attentive to your words that we might hear from your lips through the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. There are just so many things about the Christmas story that are amazing. So many things that are remarkable. So many things that are almost unbelievable. We think of this young couple who have been brought together through the most unusual of circumstances. We think of their journey, heavily pregnant and nowhere to stay. We think of the birth itself where this child is swaddled and placed in a king-sized bed made only of straw. We think in a couple chapters' time of this angelic flash mob that will appear, and the shepherds will be terrified, scared out of their minds. And then we think of a wise men following a star, carrying packages under their arms. There are so many things about the Christmas story that are amazing, just remarkable, almost unbelievable. But this morning, I want to tell you the thing that's the most amazing, the most remarkable, the most unbelievable of all. The one thing the Bible teaches about Christmas that's so mind blowing it almost beggars belief. And in picking the one thing, this one most spectacular thing, there are really a number of things that we, that we could choose from. Think, for example, of the, the prophecies about his birth. Uh, look in your, your worship guide, the, the second page there, the call to worship, where we get this prophecy from the book of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, isn't it mean that we make our children say Bethlehem Ephrathah? Okay, that's just that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to get your lips around. You Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Fast forward seven hundred years to the book of Matthew, verse one of chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born, where? In Bethlehem. Of Judea. Micah tells us the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. And then 700 years later, this comes to pass. This uh, Jesus is indeed born in this place called Bethlehem. And it's, it's amazing because uh, Old Testament prophecy isn't like modern day fortune telling. You know, which is, it's so accurate because it's so spectacularly vague. You know? So in your future, I see an interaction with a loved one. And I see something that was lost that now is found. And I see busyness. And I say, that literally describes every single day of my life. Okay? That, you know, the, the, yes, accurate because it's, because it's so vague. Not so Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy speaks with spectacular specificity, startling specificity about things that would not occur for hundreds of years. It tells us that this baby would be born in Bethlehem. It tells us that it would be born from the, the tribe of Judah. It tells us that he would be a descendant of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. It tells us that his mother would be a virgin. It tells us that they'll call his name Emmanuel. It tells us that many other children will be killed during the time of his birth. It tells us remarkably accurate historical details, 700 years and more before they actually come to pass. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. And if you're a Christian this morning, I hope you'll be encouraged and just marvel at the power of this word. Marvel at the power of this God. That he can foretell events and then through the might of his power, bring them about just as he has said that they would be. If you're not a Christian this morning, then I just invite you to consider these prophecies examine these prophecies and, and, and consider how we might explain them. How do we explain the historical details that were foretold uh, with such specificity hundreds of years before Jesus was born? Is it possible that God has spoken? And if God has spoken, is it possible that he has a word for you as well this morning? The prophecies are amazing. They're remarkable. They're, they're unbelievable. But Even they aren't the most amazing, most remarkable, most unbelievable thing about the Christmas story. Uh, How about the fact that Jesus was born to a virgin? Now, we're all so familiar with the Christmas story, but can we just muse on that a little minute? Uh, Remember last week we said Sarah was 90 years old when she gave birth to a child. That's pretty amazing, okay? But that's got nothing on being born to a virgin. That's amazing. It's remarkable. That's literally unbelievable. Believable, But the Bible makes it very clear that Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit's creative activity, creating in her uh, without her ever having a sexual relationship. She, uh, they, they read, we read in uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 that the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. The Lord has Mary's back and he understands what this would appear like to all around and so he sends an angel to Joseph and he assures him, don't be afraid to take this Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing occurrence. And so significant, of course, so significant because it's an unmistakable reminder to us that salvation must come from the Lord. Salvation is not something that can be brought about by human effort. The human race needs a redeemer but cannot itself produce one. Not by our own decision, not by our own desire, not by the process of of education or development, not as a result of civilization or evolution. The redeemer must come from outside. And so Jesus comes as that new beginning. Not a development of all that has come before, but as a divine intrusion into human history brought about by God's power. Born to a virgin. It's amazing. Of course, many people have have stumbled over this miracle. And on one level we understand, but on another level we know that if faith stumbles here, it will stagger when it reads of what this Jesus will do next. If I will, give sight to the blind of how he'll feed 5,000 people with a lunchbox, of how he'll raise Lazarus from the dead, how he himself will die and yet be resurrected. Certainly, a miracle like the virgin birth, along with all miracles, are possible for a God who created the universe and everything in it. The virgin birth stands guard to remind us that the Christmas story begins with a miracle of grace. An amazing miracle. The virgin birth is amazing, remarkable, unbelievable. But we're still not there yet. We're still not at the most amazing thing. Consider, uh, for example, the incarnation. The incarnation, because you know that the miracle of Mary's pregnancy has nothing on the miracle of the baby that's then actually born. The miracle of how she becomes pregnant is nothing compared to the miracle of the child that she'll then deliver. Jesus, who is no ordinary baby, but is fully God and fully human. Fully God and fully human. That's the mystery of the the incarnation, that God has come in flesh. The Bible teaches this in a, a variety of places and sometimes teaches it very explicitly. John, for example, tells us that Jesus, the Word... God himself has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. Paul perhaps in Colossians 2 verse 9 states it even more forcefully when he says that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Everything that is God can be found in this man Jesus. That all the qualities and powers that are in God as well as all the qualities and powers that are in us were our and ever will be really present in one person, Jesus Christ. And then as the Gospels unfold, we see the working of this divinity in this humanity. We see his divinity in the, the titles that Jesus has given. He's called God. He's called Lord. We see his divinity in the, the functions that are ascribed to him. He's described as the, the creator and as the sustainer. We see his divinity in the attributes that are given to him. We are told that Jesus is eternal, that he is all-powerful. At last, and perhaps my most favorite of all, we see his divinity in the, the prerogatives that belong to him, namely, worship. You know, as you read through the scriptures from time to time, for example, an angel will appear, and people will fall down to worship the angel. What does the angel say? The angel will say, stop, rise. I'm not God, I'm not worthy of your praise. On another occasion, the disciples themselves, after this miraculous healing, people fall at their feet to give them worship, and they're terrified. They say, get up, don't worship us, we're just just men, we're just men like you. What does Jesus say when people fall down and worship him? Nothing. Why? Because he just owns their worship. Because he is God, and he does deserve it. As our divine Savior. But as surely as we see his divinity, we also see his humanity. We see him with a very human body, a body that gets tired, a body that we read gets hungry. We see it his humanity and his, his human mind. Scriptures tell us he has to grow in knowledge and in wisdom. Scriptures tell us there are times where he's ignorant of certain facts or details. We see his humanity in his emotions as he is joyful or as he he cries. Fully God, yet fully human. And both natures, we know, are absolutely necessary if he is to be our Savior. His divinity, because our Savior has to be free from sin and has to take on this eternal punishment that we deserve. His humanity, because he needs to be our representative and our substitute. So as both fully God and fully human, he is able to mediate between us and God. It's the miracle of the incarnation, God and man, two distinct natures, one person forever. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was hanged for opposing Hitler during World War II, comments on this theme of the incarnation and says, we've become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the the pleasant and agreeable, forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. The coming of God is truly not only glad tidings But first of all, frightening news for everyone who has a conscience. Think about it. For hundreds of years, thousands of years even, the people in their worship of God had had never gone into his presence, had never entered before his face. Why? Because they knew that he is holy, he is perfect, and, and sin cannot stand in his presence. And now we read that this holy, awesome, majestic, presence of God himself is here with us. There should be a a shock to it, something jarring about it, something even fearful, that God would exchange heaven for earth, that the dust of the earth, humanity, would now sit on the throne of God. Paul puts it best in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, when he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that through his poverty you might be made rich. Christ exchanges the riches of heaven for the poverty of earth so that we in our spiritual poverty might receive the riches of heaven. The incarnation is amazing. It's remarkable. It's unbelievable. It is the miracle of all miracles. But even it isn't the most amazing the most remarkable, the most unbelievable thing about the Christmas story. The most amazing thing is not the details of the story, this young couple or the journey they take or the angels or the shepherds or the wise men. Nor is the most amazing thing the theology of this story, whether it be the prophecy or the virgin birth or the incarnation. What is the most amazing, remarkable, unbelievable thing about the Christmas story? It's not What God did. It's why God did it. It's not what God did, it's why God did it. One preacher says, when one leaves the method and examines the motive, the carefully stacked blocks of logic begin to tumble. Forget the details, forget the theology of the Christmas story. Why did God write this story in the first place? The answer, amazing, remarkable, unbelievable, is one word, love, love. God's love compels him to pursue a people who've turned their backs on him. When we look at the pages of scripture and we get the sweep of biblical history, it quickly becomes clear to us that God's best men and women fail him quite spectacularly. Let's start on page one with Adam and Eve. right? God places them in the perfection of Eden and he spreads before them the buffet of creation. And they want the one appetizer that's not on the menu. Let's fast forward a few chapters to Abraham. Abraham, the great man of faith, the pillar of three world religions who we've looked at in recent weeks and and marveled about how the Lord was at work in his life. This man, Abraham, who was promised a child, who was promised land. And how did he respond? By laughing at the promise of God and sleeping with his servant girl because his wife couldn't deliver. Or Moses. Surely Moses gives us a bit more hope. Moses is the guy who leads the Israelites out of Egypt toward the promised land. He takes them from this place of of slavery and is called by God, chosen by God to be the leader of the people. And they journey toward the promised land and then what happens? He disqualifies himself from entering. He throws his staff, he throws a temper tantrum, he rebels against God and never makes it into that promised land. Or David, King David. Okay? David gets off to a really, first thing David does, kill a giant. Strong start, right? Really strong start. Becomes king, unites a nation. Writes some really good songs. Then adds adultery and murder to his kingly resume. okay, we say, what about New Testament? New Testament people, they're going to give us a chance because they really walked with Jesus. Okay, let's take one of his inner circle. Let's take Peter, a guy who left everything he had to follow Jesus, a man who was one of the first to confess him as the Christ, as Savior and Lord, a man who walked on water. That's also a strong day. And yet the going gets tough and Peter melts into cowardice. And he ends up denying the one he said he would even die for Throughout history, God's best men and women have failed him spectacularly, and, and I'm not sure any of us would claim to have done any better. I think most of us would claim to have exemplified the worst of a lot of God's best men and women through our greed, through our control, through our anger, through lust, through fear, and yet, and yet comes Christmas. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom what? I'm the worst. Of whom I am the worst. This is the message of Christmas, that when you forget God, he pursues you. That when you reject God, he pursues you a little more. That when you despise him, he pursues you nonetheless. And that's what he's doing in the manger. Come to earth in a form that we could kill in order that we might have forgiveness of our sins. It's the message of the Christmas story. One preacher says, this love is inexplicable. It doesn't have a drop of logic nor a thread of rationality. And yet, it is that very rationality that gives the gospel its greatest defense. Why? Because only God could love like that. Only God could love like that. Sermon in a sentence. It is the why of Christmas. God's pursuing love that is the most amazing, the most remarkable, the most unbelievable thing about the Christmas story. I think there's only one other thing that comes close. The only thing that comes close to being more amazing, more remarkable, more unbelievable than that. And that's our decision to leave this gift unwrapped under the tree. This morning we welcomed 60 people into membership along with our kids. 60 people who are testimonies of the fact that we are broken and yet dearly loved and that salvation is found in no one but Jesus. That this Christmas we need a saviour and God has provided one. I wonder if you're unconvinced what it will take. What what, what would it take for you to trust him? Because I don't think it will be the details. I don't think it will be the couple or the journey or the birth or the angels or the shepherds or the wise men. And I also don't think it will be the theology. I don't think it will be Prophecy, virgin birth, incarnation. I think the thing it will take is his love. Is his love. Love made known for you this Christmas. Christmas morning has arrived. You can open this gift that he has for you. If you have already opened the gift this Christmas, two words, enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, there are indeed so many things about this season that are amazing and remarkable and unbelievable. And we do, we love the story. We love the young couple and the journey and the birth and the angels and the shepherds and the wise men. We, we love the details. We also love the rich theology. We love the prophecies and the miracle of the virgin birth and the miracle of miracles in the incarnation. But most of all, Lord, we love not what you did, but why you did it pursuing love, chasing down people who have turned their backs on you, chasing back a people who have failed you quite spectacularly. Father, I know that uh, I need a gospel like that. We need a gospel like that. One that doesn't depend on human effort, but on grace. So thank you for Jesus this morning. We pray in his mighty and matchless name. Amen.